What the Bible does not say, it does not say that you should not judge. We're going through the book of Romans, and we have made it so far, we're in chapter 2. So, that's where we will be today. Now, chapter 2. We're going to be talking about some interesting stuff. Now, in your Bible, if you've opened it, you probably see a header over there that says God's righteous judgment. So, I bet you're stoked. God's righteous judgment, that's a fun topic. So you should be looking forward to that. Now, before we get into what we're talking about, I want to tell you a little bit of a story. Now, I've, I've been in ministry for a little over 20 years, uh, mostly youth ministry. Now, when I first started out, there was a, a student who, he was only a few years younger than me. We went to the same school, but I was his leader and he was a student. But we were actually friends because we went to the same school. So we hung out before we, I even knew he was a student at the youth group. And he always loved to just kind of tag along. So he would, if, if he knew I was, you know, going out to like Denny's or something with a, with a bunch of people, he asked if he could tag along. He would always come along. And the, the biggest reason for why he liked to do that is he really enjoyed my commentary in the car. Let me explain. I'm sure you already know where this is going, but I have a running commentary for other drivers on the road and everything they should be doing correctly that they're not doing. You know, like that, that left turn was a little bit narrow. Or how about a turn signal, buddy? Thanks for that. I'm sorry, did you miss my pickup truck here in this lane? How'd you not see that going? Right? Things of that nature, he always thought was, was really funny. But the worst part about it for me was, as much as he laughed at my commentary, he was very quick to shove it in my face if I did anything that I had already complained about. Right? Isn't that a humbling moment? Anybody here ever teach someone else how to drive when they're learning all of the stuff and then they become a backseat driver and they tell you every single thing that you've ever done wrong in your entire life behind the wheel of a car? Because they now know everything until they sit behind the wheel of the car? Well, that is kind of related to what we're going to be talking about tonight. Romans chapter 2. Starting out, Paul writes, Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things are doing the same that you will escape the judgment of God. Now, if any of that sounded a little bit muddled or confusing, sorry, we'll explain it. But if it made sense, you might be thinking this, because that verse or that section of verses, along with others, have been used to try to tell Christians how they shouldn't judge anything, judge the world. Now, let me say something very, uh, very quickly. What the Bible does not say, it does not say that you should not judge. 
But what this does do, this section of verses where it basically says, if you are judging, whatever you judge on another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. What's happening is basically we've all become Bugs Bunny. Let me explain. As a grown man who used to want to become a cartoonist, this is what you get for illustrations. Bugs Bunny, when he was hunted by Elmer Fudd, do you remember these cartoons? He would run into Bugs and then ask him if he had seen a rabbit anywhere. And Bugs would look at Elmer and say, does he have long ears like this? Does he have a little bushy tail like this? And he'd point to his tail. Does he hop around like this? And he'd hop around, right? And then he would look at Elmer Fudd and say, never seen him before in my life. And he would walk away thinking he was so clever. Uh, and then two seconds later, you'd see a cork fly by Bugs Bunny's face because Elmer Fudd realizes he's going to shoot at the bunny that he was just talking to. What I mean by that is he incriminated himself. He gave away the exact description of what the hunter was looking for. What Paul is doing in this section of verses is he's basically saying, you are capable of moral judgments. In fact, you judge others morally all the time based on their actions. And you have negative comments or feedback about their actions, but you do the exact same thing. So you've incriminated yourself with your very own moral judgment. You're Bugs Bunny. As much as you say to someone else that they shouldn't lie or they betrayed you or you shouldn't cheat or whatever it is, happens in traffic, you shouldn't speed, I've gotten speeding tickets, right? Whatever it is, you say you shouldn't do this, but then hypocritically, when you look back at yourself, find out you're judging others on a different standard than you judge yourself. And you hope that God will judge you the way that you judge yourself, but judge others the way that you judge others. And it doesn't work like that. The Bible does not say, don't judge but it does have rules around judgment. In fact, showing judgment is actually a sign of spiritual maturity. This is what Hebrews says in uh, chapter 5, verse 14. It says, solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reasons of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that when you graduate to a level of spiritual maturity, you should be able to discern between good and evil. That is a judgment. To know the difference between what is right and what is wrong. To know the difference between good and evil. To know the difference between sin and righteousness. Now, even though that, those set of verses might be taken out of context, here's the one that really gets taken aback. This is from Matthew chapter 7. And it starts like this. I'm going to say it in the King James because this is how you've probably heard it. It says, judge not lest ye be judged. Have you heard that before? Well, unfortunately, for those who like to take that out of context and place that on you and show that you shouldn't judge anyone's sin, uh, unfortunately, there's more to the verse. And there's also more to the story. Here's a problem with Scripture. Chapters and verses didn't always exist. In the original text, that's not how they were. 
Chapters and verses were added much later to help people memorize or to cite areas of Scripture, but you're actually supposed to read the whole thing in context. And so this is what Jesus is actually saying when he says these words. He says, Judge not that you be not judged, for what judgment you judge, you will be judged. If that's confusing, he's, repeat, he's basically saying what Paul said. If you judge, you have moral judgment, but you're guilty because you do the same things. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite, which that's great that Jesus uses that term, so I can say it too. Hypocrite, but you know what? So am I. I'm a hypocrite too. Because the truth is, we do judge others by their actions, but ourselves by our intentions. We don't want to see our own failures, even though we make the same moral judgments about others. And what Jesus is saying is, what you've noticed in others, you have in yourself. You have actually condemned yourself as guilty because you recognize this moral failure in others that you yourself have. But what does he say then, after he says, hypocrite, he says, first, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly remove, to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It actually doesn't say that you shouldn't judge him. It says that you should get yourself in order so that you can help your brother and make the correct judgment. It doesn't say you should avoid topics of sin and judgment. It actually just notates that you yourself are sinful, just like the person you're judging. So it doesn't mean that you're above them, but it also doesn't mean that you ignore the truth because you still have to discern between good and bad, right and wrong, evil and good, sin and righteousness. It's part of our journey. And this is the case that Paul is arguing. And he states, you understand that there is a moral code in the universe, that there is an a law written on our hearts. You know it because you judge others by it, but you yourself don't live up to it, so you have condemned yourself by understanding this thing that we all know, that there is morality in this universe, and we don't live up to the standard we would like to. So let's continue verse 4. It says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering? not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Now, here's the thing about that. The goodness of God leads you to repentance. You have to use your faculties to recognize that you need to repent. Use your moral judgment to know that you have fallen short of God's glory. Therefore, you need to repent to earn his grace. And God's goodness will draw you there. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation to the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish, 
on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who works, what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. This means a lot of things. The goodness of God isn't partial. It's not separated unto just you. The goodness of God is available to all, just as is the judgment of God. And that puts us all in a peculiar place. With our own faculties, as Paul has already drawn out for us, we recognize the moral judgments that exist and how we fail to live up to them. That puts us under God's judgment. With, based on our own standards, we're under God's judgment. But there is no partiality with God, which means we're under his judgment, but we also have full access to his goodness. For as many have sinned without law also will perish without the law. And as many have sinned in the law will be judged by the law, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do these things in the law, these also, not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Well, this goes to show you, A, judgment is a part of the gospel. It exists. It's true. It's there. But what Paul is pointing out to these people, part of the church in Rome, made up of a lot of Jews there, is that you have to look at the world around you. Isn't it interesting that the Jews who have the law, still fail to live up to it. Yet, the Greeks and the Gentiles, who don't have the written law, somehow in their hearts find ways to do moral good sometimes. How do they do that? Because the law of morality is a universal law written on the hearts of men and in their conscience. This is the moral argument. It's being used here by Paul. He says, we are aware of a standard of goodness that we all recognize. There is moral objectivity. The source of moral objectivity is God. That's called the ontological argument. Basically what that states is there is a standard of goodness that we all recognize, yet we all fail to live up to. So where did we imagine that standard if no one has ever lived up to it? That standard must exist, exist somewhere if we all are aware of it. So we see it and are aware of it, but we fail to live up to it, and our own conscience shows us our guilt, and that we can make moral judgments, yet not be perfect in living up to even our own standards. And because of that, we fail before God and fall into judgment. But remember, the goodness is available to all. So we want to judge ourselves by our intentions and others by their actions, but we are not the ultimate judge. God is. We don't get to tell God how he judges us. Which means the only hope that we have is the cross. And so all of this, and talking about God's moral judgment and righteous judgment, 
even talking about how even having the law, you fail to live up to it, or not having the law, you still somehow do morally good things. What does this mean for the sincerely religious person? Or even more so, the sincere Jewish person who believes in Yahweh, but not Jesus. What happens here? Well, Paul anticipates all of these arguments. Do you remember, Paul, it, he's basically constructing a, de a defense, like a legal defense for Christianity. And this is what he writes. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in the darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, to you, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. So what Paul points out is, yes, they have access to the law. Yes, they submit to it. Yes, they recognize it as a good thing. However, they still fail, up, fail to live up to their own ideals. Even if you look at the Ten Commandments themselves, the Tenth Commandment is, is not to covet. Covet is an internal thing, not an action. It's something that takes place in your mind and in your heart. It's a desire, an envy, or a want. And even in that, in just the Ten Commandments, the, the Jews fail according to their own law. So what he says is, you are just as guilty, if not worse. Because your claim to worship God and how you teach others about him, yet you don't live up to the standards you preach. You end up making God a mockery to those who are looking at you. That is a problem that exists everywhere. Even in the modern church, we see this happening all the time. I remember in my day growing up, there was a, an album that DC Talk put out. So now you know how old I am or how young I am, depending on how you're looking at that statement. But there was an album by DC Talk where there was a preacher who cut into the middle of a song, and he said, the, the biggest problem that the world has with Christianity is Christians. Because they don't look different from the world. So what you're preaching, you're not doing. So why should I put my faith in Jesus is ultimately the point. And so what Paul is getting at is stop putting your faith in the law to save you, but rather God's grace. See, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, you can make judgments because you've, you've been given God's grace. You can make judgments and discern between what is good and evil, what is sin and what is righteousness, but not for the sake of condemning people but because you recognize they need God's mercy and grace for salvation, just like you did. Being able to discern between sin and righteousness and good and evil, it's not to condemn others, it's to recognize and look at them with compassion because you realize you failed at the law and you needed salvation and so did they. 
They need God. They need God's grace, just like you did. You're not better than them. You just have something to share with them that can help them. So how do you look at people when you make a judgment? Are you putting yourself ahead of them or are you looking at them like, I know what that's like. I remember what it was like when I didn't have Jesus in my life. And I felt guilty because I was guilty. But that guilt was taken away by the cross and your guilt can be taken away too. Because God doesn't show partiality with his judgment or his goodness. You can come to him. And I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to tell you that sin isn't sin. But what I am going to tell you is that sin can be erased by the blood of Jesus. And Paul goes on to talk about the Jewish symbol of the covenant, circumcision. He says, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And so what Paul is talking about is this argument about the covenant. See, because the Jews believed because of circumcision was a sign of the covenant, that they were the chosen people of God, and therefore they were set apart from the world. And he's saying, it doesn't matter if you have some outward physical sign, if you're not living up to the standard, you've still fallen short of the law. See, circumcision itself, they understood the physical aspect of it, but not the spiritual part. The physical part of it points to the spiritual part. It is a literal cutting away of the flesh. It is a symbol of resisting the flesh and committing to God. It doesn't put you in a special category. It just means that you are willing to ignore the flesh and live for God. Yet, when failing to live up to that commitment happens, what good is the symbol? If your heart is tied to following the law, but you fail to do so, what good is it? If you think you're going to enter into heaven because you've done enough good, you forget that doing good doesn't erase the negative. No one stands before the judge on trial and says, yes, I'm guilty of that, but last week I gave money to charity. Doesn't that erase my bad deed? No, it doesn't. You still fall under judgment because you failed to live up to the standard but there's good news. See, you have a symbol potentially that's tied to the cross. Baptism. If you get baptized, this is what you're symbolizing about your faith. That the death of your old life has come and has been buried and the resurrection of the new. As you go into the water, symbolizes death of your old life. Under the water is burying it and you come out new. 
symbolizing the resurrection of Christ. It means that your sin is nailed to the cross with Jesus, the one who bore the punishment on our behalf. And we who are brought into eternal life through the resurrection of Jesus, our faith now has the ability to complete the works of the law um, because of the goodness and grace of God, because we're covered by Jesus's righteousness. We can fulfill the law. We can't do it on our own. The power to live according to God's will is not up to your flesh, but the Spirit of God who dwells in you. So the point is, you can do that, and that's a symbol. Baptism is a symbol. We had a baptism service last week. We had four people choose to make that public proclamation of their faith and show that symbol of getting dunked into the water, leaving their old life behind, burying their old life, and come up with a new life. But what good is that symbol if their faith is not really in Jesus? It's no good because the only thing that saves is the grace of God through Jesus Christ on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. That faith is the only thing that gives us hope. So this is the truth. The ability to judge is not so that you can condemn others, but it actually is rather self-incriminating. So you are aware of what is right and wrong. And when you look within, you can recognize in yourself that you don't live up to the standards that you have for the world. So how on earth do we make it to heaven? Not on our own power, because we can't lift that stain off of us. But there is a scientific principle I want you to grasp. Have you ever heard of this back in the old days? The lever and the fulcrum. We can't lift that weight off of us. The weight of sin is too much. We can't do it, not on our own. But because of the cross, because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is like a lever and fulcrum. It gives us extra leverage to move the weight of things we could never move on our own. It allows us to lift that sin up off of us and become pure in God's eyes because the strength of the cross is far more than the weight of our sin. But the weight of the sin is too much for us to bear, but not too much for Jesus. So let that lead you to the truth. Salvation is not found in yourself or by following the law, but in the goodness of the grace of God. Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, when you see sin and evil in the world, your heart can break for those who commit sin because they needed the same salvation that you needed. There's a lot of stuff that you and I have done that are nailed to the cross if we've trusted Jesus. And that's a good thing because it takes God's judgment off of us and opens up God's goodness to us. It is the church's job to offer others that same grace and that same opportunity. It doesn't come by ignoring sin and truth. Rather, it comes by embracing that we are sinful and need the truth. No one goes to treatment unless they think something needs to be fixed. No one would go through chemotherapy if they didn't know they had if they didn't know they had cancer. 
No one would be willing to go through radiation if they didn't think there was something to stop. You don't do the world a favor by hiding sin and truth because they'll never come to think that they need a cure. You also don't do the world any favors if you pretend you're better than them because we're not. The truth is, we need Jesus and his salvation that he offers just as much as the world does. And if we can humbly approach them and let them know, I need a Jesus too. I'm not going to lie to you about sin. I'm not going to lie about the truth to you. But I'm not condemning you because I needed to be saved just like you need to be saved. Here's the answer. Jesus. You might get through this chapter and think, but didn't Paul say that someone might be able to live up to the law? Again, don't take the scripture out of its context and don't get stuck to a chapter because next week we'll be in chapter 3 where he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he takes that and he, he breaks down that argument. It's not possible. The only possibility to avoid judgment is Jesus. And it's good news and bad news. God is not partial. He doesn't hide his judgment from anyone, and he doesn't hide his goodness from anyone. The door is open. You know, Jesus called himself the door. The door is open to all. But in order to get in to the sheep pen, you got to go through the door. Faith in yourself just keeps you outside the fence. Faith in Jesus gets you into the pasture. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this evening. Thank you for the book of Romans and, and Paul's eloquent response for the truth. What is judgment? What is sin? What is grace? God, I pray as we continue to go through this book that we continue to learn and be changed by what's inside of it. God, I, I pray for each person in this room or anyone who hears this recording that we recognize the truth that we ourselves have made moral judgments and have failed to live up to them. We have no hope other than Jesus. Our faith is not in ourself, but in him. I pray that we can look at the world, a world that's continually getting darker around us, and look at them, not in condemnation, but to say, they need Jesus just as much as I did. I want to at least offer them the chance at salvation and help us be a church that gives that opportunity to those who need it pray this in jesus name amen